Hi everyone! So as you may know already, we will be hosting an online watch party soon. We'll be watching Tall Tales on Tuesday, August 3rd. We'll meet at 8pm Eastern Time and press play together at about 8.15pm. Once the episode is over, we're going to stay around and chat for a little bit, so you're invited to that. Of course. And so this event is free and it won't be recorded. You can register using the link in the episode description, or you can find that link on Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok. And Drew, just making sure this will be your first time watching Tall Tales, right? I know of the episode only in the sense that I need to see it. And apparently it's very special. So I'm excited. I'm grabbing drinks. I'm grabbing snacks. I encourage everyone to do the same and let's get comfortable And let's get on the road or a sofa. (laughs) We hope to see you there. (laughs) See you there. Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Drew Shulman. And I'm Marie Vigourou. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 2, Episode 11, Playthings. Let's get this show on the road. Okay, I'm starting this week. Yes, what did you think? So we have this lovely little relationship, I feel like, the two of us. It's, it's very nice. It's that if I should be warned about something in an episode, if there's something special I should be aware of, you're pretty good at, like, giving me a hint, at least letting me know something's coming. Yeah. Remember, like, sometime in, like, episode one or two of the first season, I brought up, like, things I'm afraid of? Yes, mannequins. What is this house full of? And take a second to think... What is a doll but a small, <laughs> creepier baby mannequin? Oh my god, Drew, I'm so sorry. I completely forgot about this. This is like someone saying, oh, you're afraid of, like, spiders? It's fine. This is a tarantula. It's totally different. <laughs> I mean, okay. For our listeners and for Merrick's, I do not want to make you feel bad. I, I'm not that much more afraid of dolls than I am mannequins. My mother has a small collection but still a few creepy dolls and i've learned to tolerate them through i guess just unfortunate exposure therapy of visiting (laughs) my parents house i still record myself watching every episode in case we ever need that audio for something like a project or for a fun thing and you can hear me on this one like every time the dolls are on screen i'm talking to myself just in case one of them does like suddenly blink or turn or i'm like Okay, that one's going to move. Okay, that one's staring. I don't like that one. Like, it's fun audio. I will have to do something with it. But like, yeah, no, not a fan of dolls. (laughs) Okay. All right. Noted properly this time. Are we ready for the recap? Yes. Okay. Three, two, one, go. We start with our cold open of a a hotel that's being sold. And of course, a hotel needs creepy twins. And the guy who was there to help them move ends up falling down the stairs and his head twists a full 180, which they even call out in the episode, just like her doll in the house that looked like him. Ooh, creepy dolls, uh, creepy dolls. We then get cut back to the brothers. Uh, Sam is like super chill with this whole Ava vanishing. He's like, yeah, I blame myself and I want to solve it, but like, I'm not going to stop, you know, like fighting evil and being a good guy. And like Dean even comments like that's weirdly mature and okay of you and i'm scared of this 
And that's a whole topic of conversation. They hear about the hotel through the roadhouse. They go. They start investigating. They think it might be voodoo or hoodoo based on some markings they see. We eventually find out that the other twin is a ghost. Oh, no. And it's actually his grandmother's sister who passed away in the pool. So she tries to drown the other little girl so she could stay there forever, along with mother murders along the way and even a suicide, which is another topic. Um, ultimately... The grandmother lets herself go and becomes a ghost child to stay with her sister in the hotel that's going to be demolished any minute now. But everyone gets a happy ending besides that, I guess, kind of maybe the end. (laughs) I mean, there's not much more to elaborate and I had six seconds left, so. Okay, I just I feel like whenever I listen to your recaps and you take like editorial liberties in it, (laughs) it just makes me realize how ridiculous some of these episodes are. Long game-wise, anything to take note of? Yes, one small thing and one bigger thing. So the small thing is that when they get to the inn, Dean says that they might even run into Fred and Daphne, referring to Scooby-Doo. I don't want to say anything without spoiling anything for you, but Scooby-Doo is important to Dean. This small detail has been spoiled, and I'm very excited to get more into it when we do. But I do have something to bring up in story time regarding this. Oh my god, I'm so happy that you know. <laughs> Scooby natural. Like the curse of being on social media is clips occasionally come up, and that one clip came up in a very brief TikTok, and I was like, this is like fan art, right? I have to Google this real quick, and then was like, no, this is a thing. So the other thing, and that's a bigger thing, but we're not we're not gonna dive right into that, but we will talk about it more eventually. So when Sam is like very dramatically drunk, he tells Dean, you're the only one who can do it, referring to the fact that Dean is the only one who can kill Sam. So I, I certainly have some thoughts about that. Uh, and I think that that will come up later as well, in my opinion. I'm interested because again, this is more of the, I've absorbed things just from being on the internet. If this plays into their destinies more, or is this really just a Sam being a little dramatic moment? Well, I mean, I think that there's a little bit of A, little bit of B, um, but there's definitely, I mean, there's definitely Sam being very dramatic in that moment, like just being drunk, like a drunk mess, which is fine. It happens to the best of us. But like, I think that there's also, (laughs) stop laughing. I think that there. I think that there's also something very real there where, you know, that belief that Dean is the only one who can do the hard things or do the things that nobody else can do. And like, would he really kill Sam? Like, that's that's a question right now. We wonder if that's true. Eventually, it becomes very clear the answer. Yeah, I mean, so again, let's it's, it's enjoy the fact that I don't know everything um, because I mean, I barely know anything. Um, but in this case, I know very little. And if I had to make the call right now of do you think Dean could be the one to kill Sam, even if it was like need to, I I don't think he could. Shall we move on to story time? Before we get started, I have a question for you, because in my notes, it says like the first fight that the boys have. And I'm wondering, do you consider the conversation that they have like in the motel room to be a fight? Or just a conversation? So I'm right away conversation because when I read your notes and the first line was the first fight, I had a moment of like, what were they fighting about before they got to the hotel? I like very like had to sit back and go, 
And then re- I kept reading another. I'm like, oh, no, oh, the conversation about Ava. That, to me, was bar overly dramatic moments in the past. The first time they've really had a conversation about their feelings. I mean, you and I were always in conversation with each other and we're in conversation like with the show, with the the, the original text that we're trying to interpret. But here I'm like in conversation with myself because I find it very revealing that I thought that this was a fight. So what about it made it feel like a fight to you? Well, without psychoanalyzing me here, I think that like while the tone didn't go up or anything, there was definitely a lot of tension between the boys in in the sense of like push and pull of what one wants and expects of the other versus what the act the other one we find out later is trying to make himself believe or trying to make the other believe as well. And I guess that that's why I put it down as a fight. Even though they're not fighting, they're just, they're, yes, they're talking about their feelings, but as you find out later, Sam, I don't know if he's truly being truthful, or maybe he's, be, he's trying to convince himself in that moment. I think this kind of falls into an interesting category, which is that way that guys spoke to each other, or guys were raised to believe they had to speak to each other. Because you can't just outright go, here's how I feel. You're not supposed to tell people how you feel and how you like to be, you know, I have emotions. Surprise. And in this moment, it's not emotional. It feels very clinical in the way, especially the way Sam answers and Dean makes the joke of like, oh, you're coping with this really well, like too well. It's scaring me. And that is the fact that they are being very blunt and being very honest without showing too much emotion because they're able to be truthful and not have to be emotional. And I think, again, this sort of stems from that toxic toxic masculinity like upbringing a lot of boys suffered through in these years. Is Sam truly being truthful, you think? Or is he trying to convince himself? Like, what's going on with Sam knowing what we know afterwards? No, and I think that's also the second layer to this, why it might seem like there's some deception going on, is that Sam isn't being honest. He is portraying this portrait of what basically Deed wants to hear. It's really interesting what you're saying, because you're saying that basically Sam is trying to people-please Dean. Yeah, pretty much. You just, again, put it into much simpler terms, yes. Which is a trait of Dean. Oh. Okay, let's put a pin in this for a second, because... I think we can use that a bit later. Okay. Can we talk about the Scooby-Doo reference for a moment? Uh, sure. Let's play a little game. I like doing this with you once in a while. How many members of the Scooby gang are there? You don't have to name them all, but you can give me an idea how many there are. Five? Like, off the top of my head, I want to go with five. Fred, Daphne, Velma, Scooby, and Shaggy. That's five. You're right. So, it would seem weird if you were to suddenly be reminded of Scooby-Doo and then abruptly name two characters... And then have to almost like follow up that response by stating, oh, because I severely have a crush on one of those two characters I mentioned out loud. Oh, (laughs) Fred and Daphne. Interesting. Yeah. Like you could have said, like you, as a child, I very much had a crush on Velma. Still kind of do my, like the glasses. I I mean, don't we all Um, I know. I mean, my God, like just, ugh. Smart girl, library, like, please. If you really, really were, like, 
a boyish boy who liked girls like I was when I was a kid, I would have said, like, in anticipation of meeting these characters, I would have probably gone with Velma and Daphne. Or as a kid who really just liked a lot of good food and turns out kind of likes his weed here and there, I would have said Scooby and Shaggy. It feels weird to name two characters and then specify one is because you have a thing for them, almost covering up the fact those are the two you named. Are you trying to say that maybe Dean had a crush on Fred too? I think so. Oh, <laughs> I kind of like that. I think that Dean is such a like disaster bisexual in <laughs> like in so many episodes. And this is like totally, this is very Dean type of thing where like he freaks out and then he deflects, like freak out, deflect. And this is basically what happens, right? He's like, oh, we might run into Fred and Daphne. Oh, uh, you know, cause like I had such a crush on her. If we then can, I mean, like that's really all I had for the segment. It's pretty short, but I just wanted to make sure it was very clearly discussed. If we continue into the story, the next major segment is basically people accusing Dean of potentially being gay and then Dean doing everything in his power to deflect it and stop it and shift the blame. Oh, Dean. Okay, okay. Let's dive into those moments a bit more because there's a few of them in the episode and I, I really want to like look at them, take our time as we comb through them. The moment that you're referring to, like that super awkward moment where the, ma the hotel manager, Susan, mistakes Sam and Dean for a couple who are antiquing. There's two parts to what I want to talk about because first there's Sam's reaction and then there's Dean's reaction to it. Because Sam, Sam is pretty horrified to think that anyone would think that he's like in a couple with his brother. To a certain degree, I can relate to that because one time when I was shopping for camping gear with my dad, because my dad and I like would go on hiking trips, like group hiking trips together because my mom and sister were not interested. One time when I was 15 years old, this clerk in a, in a store mistook us for a couple. I looked a lot older than I was. And I was like, oh my God, ew, that's my dad. <laughs> and it was honestly like the most horrifying moment of my life. Like I can really relate to Sam in that moment because he looks just so, he doesn't look uncomfortable. He just looks horrified in that moment. Yeah. So, and I, I know where you're going with this, but just to like cap this one, Sam's reaction is very much a visceral response to the idea of being in a partnership with a sibling. Yes, exactly. That is his gut reaction to this. But for Dean, like, he's just very preoccupied with Susan thinking that, like, he quote-unquote looks the type. And, like, he even asks Sam afterwards, like, why do people assume that they're gay? And Sam, <laughs> sassy Sam in this episode, replies, like, well, you are kind of butch. They probably assume you're overcompensating. And, like, Sam doesn't address why people think they are gay. He addresses why people think Dean is gay. And Dean's response, honestly, Drew, like, is a slew of micro-expressions, which I will thank Jensen Ackles for every day. Like, there's this forced smile, there's a faked nonchalance, and there's just, like, so much hidden sadness and, like, I don't know if you can relate to that, like, moment, but I feel like I've made that face before when I wasn't out. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. Like, I, I could distinctly remember times in my life where I had said something 
to my friends back when we were young and like using a homophobic slur was like the norm, unfortunately. And I did, I did or said something and they responded with one of those slurs. And my response wasn't like, Oh, you're just using like an inappropriate word to insult me. It was like, that feels weirdly targeted and I'm not okay with that. And I'm sure like in my attempt to like shrug it off and prove that I am one of the guys I'm straight. La dee da dee da. I was about to say, let's get a beer. I'm pretty sure I was like seven when this happened last time I could think about it, but still. Oh, true. The, the mentality was not just a matter of you you picked you picked a term that you deem insulting to describe me. You picked one that seems very poignant. Do you know something? And this is before mm-hmm. I was even remotely close to figuring that out by myself. No, of course. Huh, Realizations. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's fine. I'm laughing at it now more than anything else, I think. <laughs> well, because you're in a different place now. But like if you, I guess, I mean, I don't know. Maybe if you weren't out still. Because like that's the thing. Dean is in his late 20s and he's not out. So like I can only imagine like he's been carrying this. You you said that this story was when you were seven. But like he's been, so he's been carrying this for decades now. His response to that is to deflect on Sam like... Twice after that, I think. Like first by saying, first by saying that Sam's got a doll collection at home, just to make Sam look more effeminate, and Sam gives him that like, you know, like why are you like this look again? <laughs> That's that is a look I've I've received and given to my brothers both to and from so often. But there you go, where he's like, why are you doing this? There is no need. So she thought you were gay. If you're not, you're not. Like, whatever. She didn't mean anything by it. Like, it was not an insult, you know? Like, it's just like that amazing, sassy Sam look that I just love. So you read it more as he's insulted by the fact that she would think that of him, where, at least the way you just worded it there, I think it's more that he's worried that his disguise is cracking. Yes. No, I, I'm sorry. I did not express myself properly, but I absolutely agree with you. But maybe Sam doesn't quite know, right? Like, that's more what I meant by what I was okay, saying. Okay, yeah, true. From Sam's point of view, that's what he's reading it as because he has not seen it the way we have. Okay, no, that does make sense, actually. Yeah, that's how I would read it. But, like, it's... It, but I fully agree with you that I think that Dean is afraid that, like, his strong facade that he spent decades building um, at the cost of a lot of pieces of himself is starting to like crumble and like if somebody who's never met him before can see through it then like what happens with his loved ones and will he still be loved if they see through I well I mean that's what it isn't it isn't it that isn't it I mean that is what it is it's exactly what it is it's just like uh, just putting in words just makes it so real I know we just awe Dean so often, but it really is just like, oh, the poor puppy. But Drew, it's so important to put it into words, though. Like, because this, like, what we're describing, what we're describing through lived experience, like, those are things that we feel and we understand and, like, that I think a lot of people who are listening can relate to as well. And so I think that putting in putting it into words is, like, both giving us power by taking away power from like the homophobic or the heteronormativity that we've lived through in, in most of our lives. So I don't know. I'm all for putting words, taking things out of subtext. Like it is important to say things. uh, Like I, I, I'm glad you said it because you're a thousand percent right. And I think we need to make that very clear as a mission statement for the show is like, 
get out of the subtext, make it the text text. I'm just stating the fact that in doing so, sometimes it just reinforces how hard it is to be Dean and that poor baby. Do you want to talk about the second time that he deflects on Sam? The second time is that, and it's a topic we've touched on like really lightly before, especially with Sam is Dean makes like a weird joke about whacking and then alludes to like, Oh Sam, don't go watch any porn or alludes to literally says, don't go watching porn. It's not the whacking I meant. And it just, it again feels like that, like early nineties, I was raised to be a man and that's what men do kind of like speak. Basically like what we're seeing right now is Dean overcompensating for what happened earlier. Literally the next scene there, if it were up to him would have been like opening a beer by like smashing the top of it on the end of a bar and then like buying a drink for a pretty lady and like polishing his gun. Like he, he was just going through the checklist of like things men do to be manly while holding up a picture of a fish for his profile photo forever. Can we talk about drunk Sam? We can talk about drunk Sam. Okay. So like there's a lot to talk about in that scene, but I am going to, we have to choose what I'm going to focus on here. I think is like the biggest takeaways and it's not, It's not happy stuff. I feel like in this moment, he's really taking on Dean's sense of guilt. He's he's really not having a good time. Like he is like so typically dramatically drunk about the situation. Like there's just, it feels like he's preemptively trying to redeem himself for like whatever he could potentially become or do in the future. Like, I don't know, that moment made me realize that Sam is just such a good one. Like, at his core, he just wants to help people, He like and as many people as he can. And this is consistent throughout the series. Yeah, so this is our first crack in the armor of the initial lie from that first conversation, is he's not over Ava, he's not just moving on, he is trying to do as much good as he can, because, and I mean, it's something seen in a lot of cultures when it comes to whether you think about karma or you look at uh, the Egyptian afterlife to pick some really specific and weird examples, but there is this logic behind doing good things makes you a good person and can validate who or what you are. And he is trying to do as much good as he can, whether it's because he thinks this will prevent him from turning evil or that if he does turn evil, there'll be like enough good to hold him back. Like, I don't think he understands what it is, but if he's told you're going to turn bad, the only way to fight it is to do the opposite of that. I understand what he's trying to do. And it's just, you know, earlier we talked about how he was taking on like Dean's people pleasing tendencies and here he's like taking on his like guilt tendencies and there's just a part of me that's like oh my god is sam starting to show like signs of deep trauma that he wasn't he wasn't showing before so you said it earlier too that it's almost like he's taking on dean's guilt and it feels like it's less he's taking it from dean but he's finally receiving the guilt from john almost yeah i yeah i agree He's not taking it from Dean. No, you're right. Yeah, he... No, but no, no. I still think you're right. He's taking it from Dean. He is seeing, oh, Dean was cursed with this knowledge that made him feel guilty like he had this secret over me. And now I'm a part of it. 
I haven't taken it from Dean. I'm now sharing it with Dean. But the root of this is all still John. He's always there. Speaking of that, like in this same scene, like Sam asks Dean to kill him if he turns into something that he's not, whatever that means, which, you know, was basically John's dying wish. And Dean actually has like a healthy reaction to it where he goes like, well, dad's an ass. He never should have said anything. You don't do that. You don't lay that kind of crap on your kids. And I'm just like, Dean, yes, like good for you. Both in the reaction, but also it didn't even become obvious to me, but he does say onto your kids, plural. Now that he has shared the secret with Sam, he understands that Sam is part of it. And obviously Sam is now saying, hey, double down on dad's promise to me, which Dean does agree to, although I am a thousand percent sure is lying. You know, more of Dean's classic say what you mean. Don't say what you mean. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Where he doesn't always say what he means, of course. And we've seen that a lot of times. And actually, if we're going to talk about this, I'm sorry, but we, we, we can't like finish this episode without talking about this because like when Sam saves Tyler from drowning, there's a shot where he pulls her out of the water, which to me was so reminiscent of dead in the water when Dean pulled Lucas out of the lake. And like, at first I wasn't really sure of what that meant, but then considering what we've been talking about in this episode, I'm starting to think that like, it might be that Sam is following in Dean's footsteps. You know, he's the one who's taking on the cases at the beginning of the episode. He's the one who's embracing hunting. He wants to save people. He feels responsible for them. He takes on, he's feeling guilty. This is the first time we've really seen Sam properly drink. And before this, the drinking was always a Dean thing. Exactly. He's drinking on the job. This is this is Sam taking on the Deanisms? Sam take oh oh ooh that hit home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's I that's what it is. Like Oh my god, and even the end of the episode. The end of the episode is literally Rose giving up, I mean, her what remains of her life to spend an eternity as a spirit with her sister in order to save her granddaughter and great-granddaughter. Or daughter and granddaughter, even though she is very aware that this place is going to be demolished and I somehow feel like that might ruin the whole spiritual afterlife thing. Just a hunch. And we've got Sam and Dean who are doing the exact same thing. They have been laid down this law by John that at some point Sam's going to go bad and you're going to have to kill him. And Dean has made it pretty clear now that I don't think it's going to happen. So they're just going for more mutually assured destruction because they care about each other. Yeah, the parallel between Rose and Maggie and Sam and Dean, like, was not immediately clear to me. Like, 0% up until maybe, like, two minutes ago. There you go. Well, like, I saw, I, I saw it a little bit, like, because I had done some reading about the episode, because there was a, f- a few things that I wanted to, like, double check, and then I came across a reading, and I was like, oh, of course this is what it is. Like the resolution when Maggie, the big sister, because you saw it as like Rose giving up her life. But like there's also the interpretation that maybe Maggie, who's the big sister, like killed Rose. You know, I really thought this was like a nothing episode. Like I thought it was like it's a fun episode. We got a little bit of like Dean and Sam, like brotherly, like bonding and like growing. But it was a very throwaway episode. No, this is. Oh, my God. This is not a fun episode. What made you think that it was a fun episode? (laughs) 
I I mean fun as in like it was a little bit lighter than most episodes. It didn't seem as heavy. Like it didn't feel that much. But now that I'm looking at it, like they really made a like eh episode heavy. Yeah, and I think that that's like one of the strengths of the show that they're able to tell stories in the subtext in ways that like you would never really expect. Do you want to move on to critical time? Yeah, I feel like we have to. <laughs> so, who did we have this week writing and directing? All right, so this week uh, we had Matt Witten, who had previously written No Exit for us. And this is actually his final episode for Supernatural. So he wrote two episodes and then that was it. The director was Charles Beeson. So this was actually his first episode of many that he directed from like now until season 15. So Charles Beeson was a regular on Supernatural. And they clearly have a good chemistry because this episode did work really well and... I've got to say, I also liked how we had a really, like, I mean, you put it in the notes, but, like, it's a very shining episode. So, okay, so this is actually the reading that I went to look for because I could see it. I've never seen The Shining. <gasps> um, oh. Yeah, there you go. So I have never seen The Shining. Maybe that's... Uh, a live watch that we could do sometime with our, our listeners. Because I don't know the actual references, instead of just watching The Shining, I went online and just looked for the references. And that's, so I read quite a bit about that. And I, I understand that there are a lot of references, the two girls and the, the clothes that they're wearing. But like, honestly, I don't quite know like, that's kind of where my knowledge stops, to be honest with you. So I, I think parallel-wise to the themes and story of The Shining, I don't think there's a massive overlap per se, but some of the choices made in the episode, like, they literally recreate a shot from The Shining. Like, I, I almost want to go back and compare them now because it is so close, but it's when Dean walks into the bar and sits down. That is a shot, like, the every single angle like it looks like the same bar it was like it actually kind of spooked me for a second even their hotel room is the same room number from the shining there's a lot of very nice interesting details uh right away like you said it is in a hotel there is the trope of the creepy twins which was made very popular by the shining but we also get two other subtler references to stephen king in general so the first one that kind of like it stood out to me and i couldn't really think of like this is a weird connection. Maybe I'm stretching it. But then when the next one came, I was like, okay, no, now I'm thinking the first one was on purpose. The first one is there is a wedding dress with blood on it hanging in their room. I am so happy that you're explaining this to me because I was looking at that wedding dress. Like there is no way that they put this there, noted it in the dialogue for no reason. So thank you for elucidating that for me. <laughs> yeah. So my, so my Stephen King knowledge isn't, huge but right away the idea of a white dress with blood on it just to me like is inseparable from carrie oh my god wow that was a moment of just like that classic white dress covered in pig's blood like i know this isn't drenched in pig's blood but it's still a wedding dress with it's a white dress with blood on it it made me think of it right away and i was kind of like okay maybe i'm reading too much into it but then we get a killer car and literally a red killer car. I mean, this is Stephen King 101. <laughs> okay, so again, like, because I really don't like horror, 
I don't know what these references are. So like, it's, it's so interesting to hear you talk about this and to like connect the dots for me. Christine, the, the car and Carrie, the uh, story of a, actually an amazing story. Like I won't spoil it. Cause I really think you of all people would really have a good time with it. I think it speaks a lot to like female characters in like older stories. Like it's really well done, but I feel like when you're going with such heavy handed visuals and references to one piece of Stephen King lore, in this case being uh, the hotel and everything from The Shining, these other more subtle ones were like definitely on purpose. And I just think they are well done. Like we love a good reference. I love a good reference. I always want to pause and look up and I'm now like, I'm convinced there's more that I miss. Like as much as I do enjoy Stephen King, I have mostly absorbed some of the older films and TV. I have not read many of his books. Like I guarantee you there's a pet cemetery reference in there somewhere we missed. No, but in another episode, there is a, there's a reference to that. I have a question for you because in the analysis that I read, which is linked in our show notes, by the way, the author felt that the episode was mostly inspired by Kubrick's work on The Shining, not so much on Stephen King's. And I kind of want to get your opinion about this. So without going into it too much, it's very well known that Stephen King did not like Kubrick's take on The Shining, though I think in the social zeitgeist, it is the more famous, more well-known, and more often referenced. And it is ultimately a very phenomenal horror movie. It is so good and does so many things right. I just like 100% pure coincidence Maybe a day before watching this episode, listen to an entire podcast on The Shining. And then also that same day, someone pointed out to me that it was like the 30th anniversary of like a famous scene from the movie. I So I'm like, this is a weird tangent. I'm like, I'm forcing Rochelle to keep this in. I adore the concept of someone creating something and then someone else bettering it and I, I think like the common example is like oh when you like hear a cover of a song and you like I like the cover better but I'm talking about and I know Stanley Kubrick and Stephen King didn't really like see eye to eye on this one and it's more of like a social choice in this one but the famous example I always rely on for this is do you know the song Hurt yeah who sings that song I mean I want to say Johnny Cash and you would technically be right, although his is a cover of an original, but the original artist agreed that this song was always meant to be for Johnny Cash, and it was a mistake that he wrote it for himself first, and officially considers Cash's version to be the proper version. Well, I mean, there's a ton of those, and I feel like that's, but that's, I feel, Leonard Cohen's legacy in general like so many of his songs we know because of covers. We know Hallelujah because of Jeff Buckley's cover. Like you said, that's a great example, though, of Hallelujah are these touchstones of culture that are so well known. I think we even joked about last week where, like, I got a reference to something like I fully knew this was a reference to X, Y, Z, but only because The Simpsons taught me that. Yeah, exactly. There you go. And I think that there's something so interesting in that because there's like a lot of things now that I'm like, oh, I know this reference because it was on Supernatural. And I'm assuming that you also have something similar with Gilmore Girls to a certain degree, right? There are there are jokes in Gilmore Girls that I know are jokes based on the writing. I still don't understand the joke. 
because they reference someone I've never heard of and would never in any of my other, like, I need to go look it up now to figure out why that joke is funny. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about in Critical Time? I just really briefly wanted to bring up, because I feel like we'd be, like, doing harm to the community by not sharing this fact. I decided to try to look up the history of creepy dolls, and honestly, surprisingly very little. You kind of get Annabelle, Chucky, a few of the classics, a few other people who claim they have a doll that's haunted that has some level of notoriety just through, like, I mean, like, the talk show circuit even. Like, we're talking, like, that level of, like, B-celebrity status. Led me down a path to, though, that were kind of fun to bring up. I never knew this, and it seems crazy that it's, like, such a cultural phenomenon, again, on the same topic we were kind of on, that apparently in the practice of voodoo and hoodoo, which we're not going to go into because we're not experts, but it was brought to my attention in my research, do not often use the voodoo doll in the classic sense we kind of see in, like, media, and it seems as a very, like appropriated view of it which i think speaks volumes for a lot of other cultures uh beliefs being used by white media to you know fill in gaps and holes and create characters and stories so again that's not the angle i wanted to bring that to attention i didn't want to dive into it too much more than just saying like here's another example well i just i just want to jump on to something that you said like when you talked about like us not talking about voodoo and hoodoo because we're not experts um, because I think that that's important to recognize because in the little bit of research that I did when watching this episode, I could see that there were a lot of nuances that I would not be able to explain with just like a little bit of preparation, right? Like, and it sort of brought up for me, like the whole like question of the, they, they bring up the, the quintux, quincux, like the, the five point. And it made me sort of wonder, like, is that truly a hoodoo symbol like it just made me wonder if it was because when I just very simply googled it I couldn't find any information about it now that might be because it's a closed practice I'm not sure in the at the end of the day what it tells me is that like I don't really trust the lore that they're feeding us in this episode simply because I am assuming that there was no hoodoo expert consulting I would do anything to get an expert in hoodoo or voodoo or just even in the histories of those cultures and those religions on this show. So if you know one, please put us in touch with them. Shall we hear what the community has to say, though? Yes. Just a heads up, this voicemail discusses sexual assault and being drugged. If that's not something you'd like to hear, we encourage you to skip ahead about 10 minutes to skip this segment. Feel free to come back at a later time or skip it all together. We understand. Hi, Carrying Wayward. You guys are amazing, and thank you so much for your analysis of Supernatural. It's awesome listening to a show you love being criticized through an academic lens with such care and intellect. You guys actually inspired me to start my own podcast. I wanted to comment on your episode Simon said regarding Dean and his mentioning that being roofied doesn't count. This is not the only instance Dean has referred to being roofied or being subject to dangerous situations in his youth. I'm going to read out some of the transcript for Season 9, Episode 13, The Purge. Dean, what kind of supplements? Sam hands him the bottle. Dean, looking at the supplement bottle. These aren't supplements, they're roofies. Sam, what? How do you know what roofies look like? Dean, how do you not know? You think I want to end up in a hotel bathtub? with my kidneys carved out in Chechnya? 
Dean clearly is aware of date rape culture and actually identifies the sensation of being drugged and instantly recognises what roofies look like. Sam, on the other hand, doesn't. In another allusion to Dean's victimisation from sexual assault, especially given the context of Jensen's comments brought up last episode and Dean's code around sex workers, he never pays for sex, which he actively explains in Season 10, Episode 7, And in season nine, Dean tells a story from his childhood to Cass and Sam, where he sneaks out in New York. Sam says that Dean was way underage at the time. And Dean says, all right, so I get there. I sneak in and it's nuts. I mean, people are drinking and they're smoking and they're snorting, whatever. There's a 500 pound guy on stage with a mohawk just screaming. And uh, my mind is blown. I don't even know what to do. Then this girl walks up to me and says, hey, do you want to come and join our table? All right, Sam, yeah, and they get him drunk, first time. Dean, but not fun drunk. I'm not sure what was in that stuff, but the room starts to spin and I feel like I'm going to puke forever. And right about that time, I hear him, Dean Winchester. Cass looks confused, but Sam just smiles. My old man, I don't know how, but he found me. And now I'm really freaking out because he's just standing there, not saying anything. Anyway, so John takes him from the bar. Make of that what you will, but I thought it might add to the discussion around Dean and sexual assault. Anyway, I just want to say thank you again for what you guys are doing. I look forward to your episodes every week. Lots of love, Lulu. First, Lulu, thank you so much for your message on the highs and lows of the high side of the, like, what an adorable message and thank you for reaching out to us. And it, again, will never stop warming my heart hearing people happy that we're doing what we're doing. And then the very heavy side of just reiterating what I have already started to believe with more evidence from down the road that just solidifies my very, very unfortunate headcanon that now seems to be much more canon than I thought it was. Reading of Dean's history with sexual assaults and date rape culture and drugs and just... It hurts my heart, but it just it fits the narrative so well that Dean has gone through this. I mean, even just that story you shared from a later episode where he sneaks out and ends up in this like crazy bar in New York. And I mean, that is escapism. That is someone trying to get away from the life they currently have to find what they think might be better. You know, you don't walk into a bar and see that scene and go, I'm going to stay unless you're actively trying to figure yourself out and figure out why what you're doing isn't working. Yeah. Lulu, first of all, like, Wow, I'm so happy that you started your own podcast. That's really amazing. It's we know how hard it is and how much work goes into it. So hats off to you, honestly. Congrats. So thank you for letting us know about it. And honestly, yeah, it's you know, it's really interesting because we're always kind of treading that line of do we show evidence or do we present evidence from future episodes or do we really stay in the moment where we are and in this moment, you're really helping us a lot because you're presenting evidence from future episodes. So you're like removing, removing that dilemma for us. I'm, and in that way, I'm so thankful because when we started talking about roofies in, in, in that episode, in Simon said, the first thing that came to my mind was that scene from the purge, because I remembered Dean saying that and being like, what? How does he know what roofies are? And he gives that like, 
And again, it's treated as a very like throwaway, like um, humorous moment, but it's really not when you start putting things together. I mean, you know, like I, again, I, having been raised as a woman, one thing that I was always told was never leave your drink unattended. And Dean was probably not taught that because he's a boy and because he's was supposed, quote unquote, to be a manly boy, a boyish boy or whatever. So I know that people have different ideas of how that happened because there's some comments on our TikTok that say that maybe it was John who taught him about it. Maybe he had to learn to defend himself, etc. But it's just either way, it really shows that he is aware and he knows from experience because he understands the danger and he understands the culture. So thank you so much for pointing that out for us. Yeah, I'm sorry. Even to just go back on your comment you just made about the comments on our TikTok channel of people being like, what if John just taught him? I'm sorry, did Lulu not just directly read a quote from the show where Dean admits to have been being drugged? There was something in that drink in that bar. Not even like a, well, if you read it a certain way or the interpretation or the illusion. No, no, like there is dialogue in the show that you have just presented to me that proves this point. It's not so much that. It's just that, like, I think some people are saying, like, John taught him what roofies were like so that it wouldn't happen again type of thing. Like, I think one of our listeners had said, had used the quote, like, no son of mine will be drugged like a girl. Oh, yeah, that has John written all over it. Full of contempt and homophobia and misogyny and... Yay. I hate to leave on a bitter note, but like genuinely, thank you for the comments. Thank thank you you for the voicemail. Thank you for the listeners. Whether you don't have something to share and you're just happy to consume the show and just support us however you do, to those who send us voicemails and respond to our tweets and follow us on social, like... It warms my heart, and this is why we do the show. And on that note, shall we head on down to the crossroads? Yes, let's. I think it's uh, probably your turn to start this week. If I'm being honest, I sort of forgot to write one down. (laughs) So this will be on the fly. I wish that they just hadn't mentioned hoodoo at all. Very blunt and very to the point, and you are 100% right. There is a clear reason why they did it. The two-angled version of the misdirect, like, oh, clearly hoodoo voodoo is the reason this everything's happening. And then the eventual, oh, well, Rose, who was raised by this, you know, black housekeeper, clearly this is the reason why she knows hoodoo voodoo and is using it to, like, kill people. And then in the end, we find out it's actually being used for good. And this just puts this housekeeper, who's never given a name, I don't think, uh, into the role of the magical black person uh, trope. I think that what you're saying like proves my point (laughs) that it wasn't necessary and it was just done like for shock value. I just found it very odd. Like I'm not sure that a nanny would be photographed with a child that was in her care at the time, especially not a black nanny. As I said earlier, I'm not even sure that the lore that's presented to us about hoodoo here is accurate there was no expert on on the team to advise. I, I feel like 
you know, the whole hoodoo subversion could have just been like witchcraft. You want to villainize women? Sure, villainize white women. You really don't need to villainize black women anymore. Yeah, it really feels like they were making the black woman the victim or the villain. And then, oops, no, she's actually the good person. Like, it's white person trying to make, look, I'm not racist. I made the black lady a hero. You're basically showing, again, Sam and Dean in a white savior lens. So, again, just not necessary. It could have just been witchcraft, period. What about you? Funny enough, basically the same thing. They had something in this episode that was completely unnecessary and was only there for shock value and to subvert us. And that's dolls? <laughs> that's so true, actually. It was really just there to screw people's head. <laughs> Exactly. Like at no point, like at least, at least the voodoo, as much as it was done wrong, at least narratively, like as much as we discussed, could have just been witchcraft. At least it played a part in the story. But the dolls are literally just set dressing that are used for that. Like, oh, isn't Sam so gay because he likes dolls joke that Dean makes. And then just to be creepy around the set, like even the ones that end up like, I guess the, the subversion is like, oh, it's a voodoo doll because look, it got knocked down the stairs and head turned around just like the guy. It's just, it's the ghost of the grandmother just having like a weird bit of fun, I guess, which is really creepy. But like the dolls add nothing. <laughs> it was a weird episode. <laughs> weird episode, but I mean, we learned a lot about Sam and Dean. But there you go. Like, I find that in terms of, like, the brothers, it was a really great episode. Like, we we dove into some things that were really interesting that I'm really happy we talked about. But I feel like the monster of the week part really sucked. <laughs> I feel like I like the idea of the ghost of a little girl who is lonely and the ultimate victory is not, like, vanquishing it, but, like, letting her find her peace, which in this case, unfortunately, does appear to be taking her own sister's life and getting to like be together like they never got to be finally like it's it's a very sad but kind of works in a way but it like needed like thousands of layers of like other stuff d dropped on top of it to fill the episode which i think ultimately is the suffering point i have problems with any storyline that presents death as the only way to be happy You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Drew Shulman and myself, Marie Vigourou. This week, we'd like to thank Lulu for her message. Help us keep the conversation going. You can send us a voice recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com, and you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube using at carryingwayward. Make sure to leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to grow our community. And until next week, carry on our wayward friends. Mwah, mwah. The wine is hitting me. <laughs> <laughs> and you made me sad. <laughs> and I'm about to be drunk, Sam. <laughs> <laughs>Just a heads up, this voicemail discusses sexual assault and being drugged. If that's not something you'd like to hear, we encourage you to skip ahead about 10 minutes to skip this segment. Feel free to come back at a later time or skip it altogether. We understand.